Hey, good evening, Fathom Academy, uh, week eight. Welcome, glad uh, you're with us. Once again, I'm Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Fathom. If you're not a part of our church, we're glad you're joining us for this class online. Uh, This is week eight. We are jumping into uh, really soteriology, which is, uh, uh, I mean, Ryan will go into it, but but tonight we're going to deal specifically with uh, different modes of the atonement, what Jesus did with his life and his death, uh, focusing in on the cross. So uh, this is going to be a real uh, rich evening. Just want you to know that we've recorded this twice already, and Ryan, uh, Ryan did not do anything wrong. We've lost the tape a couple of times, like the data has been corrupted. So this is Ryan's third run through on this stuff. Just so you know, like, He's not normally this good fresh. Uh, this is actually uh, a few times down. So excited, though, for us tonight. Let me pray for us, and then we will get into it together. Father, we we bless you once again. We're thankful for an evening, uh, just an hour together, studying specifically tonight uh, what Jesus did, his life and his death. Lord, the work on the cross, the atonement, uh, some would say the very pinnacle of everything of time uh, was was when Christ died on the cross. So tonight, Lord, would you uh, enrich our minds? Would you open our eyes and, and, and soften our hearts to hear what you have for us and to deepen us in our love for you? Lord, we bless you tonight in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen of Fathom Academy. Here we are in week eight. As Chris mentioned, it's good to be back with you again uh, where we left off last time uh, on a pretty down note when we talked about the doctrine of sin and all of the manifold problems that humanity has and how dire our predicament is as we are enslaved to the powers of darkness and sin and death. Uh, and I promised at the end of our time last week that we would have good news coming soon. Uh, and we do. Uh, it's good news. It's maybe not happy news. Some of the subject matter we're going to be talking about tonight is still pretty dark. Uh, but we are introducing uh, the study of salvation. Soteriology is the technical term. Comes from the Latin, uh, sorry, the Greek word so, uh, soteria, which means, yeah, deliverance, uh, freedom from ransom, uh, uh, from bondage rather. And it means uh, something like rescue. That's the word that I like to use most often because it captures just how urgent our need is. And we're going to talk about how God rescued not only humanity, but the entire created order in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's, of course, the pinnacle of the gospel, the story that the the Christian faith tells about the nature of the world, the nature of its fallenness and its redemption. And it all centers on this person here on the cross, Jesus Christ. And so uh, over the course of our next few talks... We're going to be inside this doctrine of soteriology. Tonight, we're going to talk about what are called models of the atonement. Uh, And what we mean by that is simply just different images and language that Christians have used to describe what Jesus does on our behalf when he dies on the cross. Uh, And you may be surprised to learn that the Bible and uh, early Christian theologians used all kinds of different, diverse, and manifold images to capture the work of Jesus on the cross. That's a surprise for some of us, I think, because we are raised uh, to think of the atonement according to one model or another, and usually we don't appreciate the wide uh, diversity of atonement images. So that's where we're going to spend most of our time this evening, uh, and then setting the stage for our talk next week, when we're going to talk about the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation. So 
This is how we're going to proceed tonight in four parts. We are going to be looking at the work of Christ. I'm going to make a few introductory remarks, give you some very basic definitions of terms that you are likely to see in the study of the work of Jesus. In part two, we're going to have a look at the New Testament's presentation of the death of Jesus. We're going to look at the gospel accounts of the death of Jesus. We're going to look a little bit about how Paul thinks about the death of Jesus in his letters. And then we're going to look at some of the, uh, some of the miscellaneous New Testament writers to look at uh, all the different ways that biblical authors think about the death of Jesus. In part three, I'm going to introduce you to five or six or so models that Christian theologians have used to explain and illustrate the work of Jesus. And I'm going to try to make the case that actually we need all of them if we're going to make sense of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And no one model by itself is sufficient to describe all that Jesus did. Uh, and so that we need all of them and they're not in competition. And so uh, after we do that in part four, I'm just going to make a few concluding remarks. So part one here uh, on your study guide will give you a couple of definitions uh, related to the technical field of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Um, and we might describe soteriology like this, the investigation of that work of God by which he delivers his creatures from sin and death. And he does so in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So a couple things we want to emphasize. Soteriology is a divine work. In other words, God does the work of salvation. We'll talk about the ways that human beings can receive salvation and participate in their salvation in subsequent talks. But we want to make clear from the very beginning that salvation is the work of God. And that is consistent with the way that we've organized this entire course where we begin with God and then only then move on to uh, think about what God means for us and what God's work on our behalf means. Uh, as I mentioned briefly, the etymology of this word is from the Greek word soteria, uh, and it means deliverance. Uh, often this term means uh, a sort of release from any kind of bondage, liberation from slavery, for example. And this is one of the key words that the New Testament uses to describe the work of Jesus. Uh, to be saved is in some sense to be released from a power that was holding us captive. We'll come back to that in a little bit. I want to just talk about what we mean by the word atonement. Atonement is an interesting word. Uh, it was coined in the 16th century by the Reformation theologian William Tyndale, an English theologian. And the reason he coined the term is because as he was reading the New Testament, he noticed that Paul often used the word reconciliation quite a lot in Greek. And uh, Tyndale was looking for a good English rendering of it. And so he created this word, the word atonement, did not exist until the 16th century. And if you sound it out like they teach you in elementary school, you'll see that the word is at one meant. And what Tyndale was trying to capture is that the work of Jesus somehow overcomes the alienation between humanity and God uh, so that they can be at one. So on one level, when we're talking about the atonement, we're talking about the, the work that God has done so that we can be at one with him, so that we can be united to Christ. Right? Uh, I've given you a very cumbersome uh, definition of the atonement from the Scottish theologian John McLeod Campbell. And you'll have to forgive this. This is an absolutely torturous sentence. If a, a student at the seminary gave me a sentence like this, uh, there would be red all over it. So the syntax is confusing, but I really want us to focus on the content because the content is good. Campbell says this, atonement is that by which God has bridged over the gulf which separated between what sin has made us 
and what was the desire of the divine love that we should become? Again, uh, theologians sometimes write in this cumbersome way to prove how many fancy words they know. Let's translate this into regular people speech. What Campbell is talking about is atonement is the work that God has done to overcome the chasm, not only between us and God as a result of our sin, but as a, overcome the chasm between what we are mired in our state of sin and brokenness and what it is God's desire that we should become, which is full image bearers, human beings who are living fully alive, their vocation to reflect the image of God. Uh, and of course, we cannot do this because we are subject to sin and death, as the New Testament tells us. And the atonement is God's work to overcome that. And, G, uh, and God does this first and foremost in the person of Jesus Christ in his death on the cross, which is where we're going to be spending most of our time this evening. Another related term you'll see is propitiation, uh, which is a technical term that refers to the turning away of wrath by means of an offering of sacrifice. So one, uh, it's related to the Greek word hilasterion, uh, and that word in Greek refers to the mercy seat uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, as you see it, for instance, in Leviticus uh, in the Pentateuch. And that is the place where sins are forgiven as, the, uh, as God accepts a sacrifice and exhausts his wrath uh, on, uh, on behalf of his people. And so uh, one of the ways that Paul talks about the death of Jesus, for instance, in the letter to the Romans, is by saying that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He is the hilasterion. His body becomes the place where sins are forgiven and where divine wrath on sin is exhausted. Now, we need to make one clarifying remark here. Sometimes you will hear people object to the idea of what is called the substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus steps in and exhaust the penalty for sin that uh, was intended for us. And one of the objections you'll hear uh, is that it makes no sense that Jesus, that God would punish Jesus instead of us because we're, uh, he's not the guilty party we are. And how does that actually remedy the problem to punish someone who's not guilty instead of someone who is? What I want to make clear is the New Testament teaches not that God punished Jesus, but that God punished sin which was being born by Jesus, right? First uh, Peter will talk about Jesus bearing uh, the sins of the world on his body, right? On the tree. Uh, and so uh, God is punishing sin in the crucifixion, but he's not punishing Jesus. It's not a divine child abuse situation as one contemporary theologian has described it. So what are we trying to do? with the doctrine of soteriology. Well, this is actually related very closely to the story that we told last week about the doctrine of sin. Uh, and the theologian Alistair McGrath has put it like this. He says, the Christian doctrine of sin tries to give an account of what went wrong. And that's what we did last time, talking about how uh, the, the sin of Adam and Eve created a state of estrangement between uh, humans and each other, between humans and the created order, and of course, because, uh, between humans and God, this kind of chasm, uh, this cataclysmic catastrophe that alienates us from God and from each other. Uh, that's what went wrong. And as we talked about last time, uh, the Christian doctrine of sin is multifaceted. Uh, biblical writers use lots of different images for sin to express all the different and manifold ways that sin can rear its ugly head and wreak havoc and destruction in God's good world. Uh, and so the main takeaway from last week was that 
The human predicament is dire because sin is powerful and it has designs on unraveling God's good creation and pulling it back into nothingness. So McGrath says, that's what the Christian doctrine of sin is trying to do. Give an account of what went wrong. He says the doctrine of salvation deals with the restoration of the created order and above all humanity to its proper relationship to God. A couple things I want to note here. Just as all the effects of sin are multifaceted and diverse, there are uh, an equally diverse amount of images that the Bible uses to describe atonement. And part of the reason for that is, is we've got so many problems that are created by sin that God's solution to our plight had to be multifaceted. Another thing that we should note here, McGrath quite rightly notes that the scope of Jesus's saving work is not just individual sinners like you and me, although of course it is that, it is the redemption of all things, as Paul says in many different places. Um, that, uh, For instance, as Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the entire created order, everything that is. And so the work of Jesus Christ and here's the very technical theological term, is very, very big. So uh, given that it is so big, we shouldn't be surprised to see that the New Testament uses a bunch of different images to describe the death of Jesus. So what I want to do for the next few minutes uh, is just give a very brief overview uh, of how the New Testament in particular talks about the death of Jesus. And I want to start in the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these ancient biographies of Jesus that culminate uh, with the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, and if you've read through these documents, you'll know that they spend a lot of time on the lead up the, uh, to the death of Jesus, his trial uh, by the religious authorities of his day, his, uh, his audience with Pontius Pilate, who is a Roman governor over Judea who ultimately orders his crucifixion. And then, of course, with the crucifixion itself. And not only that, Jesus spends a lot of time in his public ministry uh, giving rather cryptic remarks, and sometimes not so cryptic, that he's going to be handed over to sinful humans who are going to kill him. Uh, and on the third day, he will rise again. So the death of Jesus looms large over the Gospels. And in fact, the New Testament scholar Martin Kaler, he once sort of cleverly quipped, that the Gospel of Mark in particular, but I think it stands for the others too, is a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And what he meant is the book spends, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of time and energy on the death of Jesus and kind of races to get to that point, uh, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. But given that, that the death of Jesus is in some ways the focal point of all of the Gospels, it, it's somewhat surprising and kind of puzzling that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they never explicitly give us a theology of the atonement. They don't say, and then Jesus was crucified, and then they say, and by the way, the reason for this is because he was the Lamb of God who was taking away the sins of the world, and he had to interpose himself to, to absorb divine, divine wrath on sin and uh, liberate us from the powers of sin and death and darkness. They don't ever say that. There's lots of material, and the the that we can surmise a doctrine of the atonement from in the gospels, but there's never really anything explicit, which is sort of surprising. But with that said, it's not as if the gospels don't say anything. They give us plenty to go on if we have eyes to see. A good example, for instance, appears in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, uh, Jesus very famously says of himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And what comes next? And to give himself as a ransom for many. 
Now, Mark doesn't elaborate on what Jesus meant by that, but that word ransom is highly significant. Um, the word in Greek designates uh, a payment that is made to purchase the freedom of someone who is held in slavery, all right? Which is very su- suggestive. So when Jesus speaks of giving his life as a ransom, he seems to be indicating that somehow his death pays the cost that it takes to release us from our bondage, right? Bondage to sin and to death, as Paul will put it in, uh, particularly in the book of Romans. Another image that appears usually in, uh, well, more prominently, I should say, in John's gospel and then in other Johannine literature, like the Revelation of John, the very last book in our New Testament, uh, is to refer to Jesus Christ as the lamb that was slain or the lamb of God. And indeed, in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist is there with some of his disciples, he sees Jesus walking by and he says to his disciples, behold, there's the lamb of God who takes the, takes away the sin of the world. And this, uh, most scholars think is a reference to Israel's temple sacrifice system. Uh, where if you read the sacrificial codes of the Pentateuch, Leviticus and numbers in there, those books of the Bible that uh, we usually skip over. We all make these New Year's resolutions to read the Bible straight through, and then we get to Leviticus and uh, give up. But that's uh, those documents are very, very important for the New Testament writers because they're suggesting in the same way uh, that a lamb was slain as a guilt offering on behalf of God's people, Jesus's death will be functioning like that for God's people. Uh, a second image that's related to that is that the gospel writers depict the death of Jesus as a paschal sacrifice of the New Testament. Uh, In other words, as a reiteration of the story of Israel's exodus from slavery in Egypt. Uh, Many of you will know the story of God's people being enslaved in Egypt for generations, and then God sends Moses to deliver them. Uh, And the, the way that he does this is by sending a series of plagues on the people of Egypt. The last plague... Uh, was that uh, God would send an avenging angel. It's a very mysterious passage who would take the firstborn son of all the families in Egypt. And the only sons that would be spared are those who uh, sacrificed a lamb and and put the lamb's blood on their doorposts uh, so that the angel of death would pass over uh, the doors. And this is, of course, the Passover narrative, which is so central to the Gospels. And the Gospel writers uh, depict Jesus as somehow... Uh, the paschal lamb who is being sacrificed, who is giving his life so that death might pass over uh, uh, everyone else. Uh, And they do this in subtle ways, uh, sometimes not so subtle. For instance, in the Gospels, the night before Jesus' death, he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples and speaks of breaking his body and shedding his blood on their behalf. Uh, and then sometimes it's a little more subtle than that. For instance, in John's gospel, when Jesus is being uh, tried by Pilate, John is very careful to point out, he says, this was about the time of day that Passover lambs were being prepared for the slaughter. In, uh, in a very real sense, trying to get you to see the trial and death of Jesus in parallel with the Passover narrative. So all that is to say, one of the ways the gospel writers think about the death of Jesus is Uh, as God's great and uh, most magnificent act of deliverance. So just like in the Exodus, he released his people to slavery in Egypt through the death of Jesus, he will somehow release his people from the powers that stood behind Egypt, the powers of evil and death and sin. Uh, So Jesus' death is seen as the great 
Passover by the gospel writers. So uh, by way of summary, and I know this is a quick tour, uh, there's lots more than we could say here, but uh, by way of overview, overview, we might put it like this. The gospels envision the death of Jesus as a ransom for sin, so a payment made to, to liberate someone. Uh, sometimes they see it as a sacrifice, as in the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, uh, and sometimes as the new exodus, but they don't usually unpack the mechanics of the atonement. And what I mean by that is they don't give a systematic, clear account of what exactly is happening on the cross. Uh, As we're about to see, the Apostle Paul does a little bit more of that work, uh, but it still remains a fairly mysterious business. So let's have a look at the way that Paul thinks about uh, the cross, the atonement. As I mentioned earlier, one of Paul's favorite images that you get all over the place, you get it in in somewhere like Colossians 1, uh, all throughout 2 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in particular, uh, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1 and 2, it's all over the place in Paul. One of the things that Paul thinks that the death of Jesus accomplished was the reconciliation of all things to God. Uh, somehow, some way, according to Paul, in the death of Jesus, uh, the alienation between God and his creation that has been wrought by sin is somehow overcome. Uh, And now we can be united to Christ and uh, thereby put in right relationship to God and to to each other. So significantly, Paul sees the crucifixion as unlocking what he calls the ministry of reconciliation for believers because we've been reconciled to God and to each other uh, through the death of Jesus. We should now be people of reconciliation uh, who bring things together that were once torn apart. And I mentioned in our talk on sin that one of the things that sin is trying to do is to unravel or to dissolve God's good creation, to try to pull it apart. And the death of Jesus, according to Paul, puts it back together. Right? It undoes the work of sin in that way. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaks of the cross as a triumph over the powers. Now, a couple things we need to note here. Uh, in Paul's cosmology, there are, uh, yeah, there are fallen spiritual beings, demons, what have you, who have somehow commandeered the systems and structures of this world and have enslaved them. Uh, and he calls these these beings the powers or the principalities. And for Paul, to be a human being is to be subject to the powers and principalities. We're enslaved to them. Uh, This is an argument consistently, for instance, throughout the book of Romans, that we are enslaved by the powers and the principalities. And one of the things that Paul says about the cross is that uh, in the moment of his crucifixion, Jesus exposed and shamed and ultimately overcame the powers. Uh, And not only that, it says that he made a public public spectacle of the powers. Now, this is really interesting. The image is from Greco-Roman military culture. It's the idea that when a, a successful general would go on a military campaign into a foreign land. He would conquer them, and then he would take back slaves, prisoners of war, and they would be in a long procession trailing behind the general with their heads uh, their heads bowed in shame and their hands bound by shackles as if to say, uh, our general has conquered, and look what became of his enemies. Uh, the Romans were very famous for doing this. If you've ever been to Rome, you may notice that throughout all the public squares, 
uh, it's not uncommon to see, for instance, Egyptian artifacts, like big uh, obelisks, these huge stone monuments that don't look Roman. And that's because they're not. Uh, these were taken as trophies of war uh, when Roman generals conquered Egypt, for instance, brought them back to Rome. And Paul is saying, just like that Roman general who has shamed his enemies and is now bringing them in a procession as prisoners of war behind him. Paul says, that's what Jesus does on the cross. It is through his self-giving love and his death that Jesus triumphs over the powers and shames them uh, and exposes them for what they are. It's a very powerful and beautiful image. Paul also speaks of Jesus's death as a quite, quite simply a substitutionary propitiation. If you were raised in an evangelical Protestant context, or if that's where you worship now, this will sound familiar to you. Paul can speak in very plain terms about Jesus somehow dying for him in his place. He says this, for instance, in Galatians chapter two, he refers to Jesus Christ as the one who loves me and gave himself for me. And we talked about this word propitiation as the one who exhausts the wrath of God on sin. Paul can speak of Jesus stepping in uh, and absorbing the wrath of God on sin. It's not the only way that he talks about the death of Jesus, but it is one of the ways. Perhaps the most dominant model uh, for Paul in terms of thinking about the death of Jesus is as a ransom or as a redemption uh, or the word manumission. Uh, Now, that's not a word we use very often in English. It might be a word that's new to some of you. Manumission means to pay the price of freedom for a slave. So after the Civil War, uh, after uh, President Lincoln signed the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, all of those slaves were manumitted by decree. They were released from slavery uh, and uh, given their freedom, at least ostensibly, uh, under the law. and Paul says that one of the things that the death of Jesus does is it pays the, the wages of sin, which is death, right? Uh, when we fall into sin, we are held captive by the powers of sin and death, and we are helpless to free ourselves from them. Now, this is the argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter 7. He talks about the things I want to do, I don't do them, and uh, the things that I know I should do, Uh, I I can't bring myself to do. And then there's things that I don't want to do, but I I end up doing them. And he says, the reason for this is that there is a power at work in my members, in my body, he says. The power of sin making us do things we don't want to do. And we all know this feeling, don't you? Where you can feel sin get a grip on you and you can't overcome it. And Paul cries out at the end of chapter 7 in in sort of desperation. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And the next line, thanks be to God, because Jesus has done precisely this uh, in his crucifixion. Uh, For Paul, somehow, the death of Jesus pays the cost of manumission, releases us from the power of sin and death. And this, of course, informs Paul's ethics. We'll talk a little bit later uh, in, in a couple of weeks when we talk about the doctrine of sanctification. But for Paul and the other New Testament writers, because of the death of Jesus, And because it has actually released us from the powers of sin and death, we can now live a new life in the power of the Spirit where we are not subject to those powers anymore. Uh, It really affects a change for Paul. So what's the takeaway? How might we sum it up? Again, very brief overview. But I think at the very least we can say this. Paul uses a wide range of images 
from reconciliation of estranged parties. So sometimes he uses familial or relational language. The death of Jesus overcomes alienation between parties. Uh, sometimes he uses imperial victory language, right? We talked about that. Uh, and sometimes he uses cultic sacrifice language, right? Jesus dies in our place as a sacrifice. And sometimes he uses the language of manumission of slaves, releasing us from bondage. And he does all of this to capture the saving work of Christ, because as I've been trying to, to emphasize, no one image actually captures all that Jesus does on the cross. Very, very briefly, before we head into a couple different images in the history of doctrine, I just want to introduce you to a couple of images from elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, the book of Hebrews in particular has a very rich and robust and actually very complex doctrine of the atonement. And in, in many ways, uh, the letter to the Hebrews is all about the doctrine of the atonement. And one of the arguments that Hebrews makes is that Jesus Christ in his death is somehow the final and sufficient sacrifice. Uh, the, the author of the book of the Hebrews, whoever they are, they make the point that in Israel's cultic system, in their sacrificial system, the priest has to continually make sacrifices for sin year after year because no one sacrifice is sufficient once and for all. But he says, in fact, uh, in the death of Jesus, he has offered himself as the perfect and final sacrifice so that we no longer need to keep bringing these sacrifices. And there's lots of pastoral import here, Right. Uh, we do, it means in some sense, we do not need to wallow in our sin and continually beat ourselves up and try to bring uh, continual sacrifices of good works to God. It's already been paid, the author of the Hebrews says, uh, in the death of Jesus. Uh, the author of Hebrews also presents Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. So uh, paradoxically, in Hebrews, while Jesus is actually the final uh, perfect sacrificial victim, he is also the priest who offers uh, the sacrifice. So he is both the perfect uh, sacrifice and the perfect priest who mediates on our behalf. First uh, Peter, we'll talk about the, the cross of Jesus as ransoming us by the blood of Christ. There's that ransom language again, the payment of a fee to release someone from bondage. Uh, and uh, he says later on in his book that Christ is the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree. What I want you to notice is how visceral and how physical that language is. Uh, Jesus bearing sins on his body. You may recall from our last time together that one of the things the Old Testament really wants you to understand about sin is that it's a reality. It has to be dealt with. All right. It's not uh, illusory. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. And Peter is picking up on that idea that there's something physical right? Visceral about Jesus bearing the sins of the world on his body. So the takeaway, the New Testament authors, they thought of Jesus as the climax and the end of Israel's sacrificial system. Uh, right away, Christians stop offering sacrifices uh, and uh, animal sacrifices have never been a feature of Christian worship. And the reason for that is because Christians confess that Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice puts an end to the sacrificial system. And they thought of his death as bearing the weight and the penalty of sin. I think you get the idea. All I'm trying to get through in this very uh, brief survey tonight is that the New Testament uses lots of different images to talk about the death of Jesus. And so it should come as no surprise that uh, early Christian theologians also used a wide variety of images. Uh, I'm going to introduce you here to a few different what are called models of the atonement. Sometimes you'll hear the language of theories of the atonement, uh, doctrines of the atonement. 
um, modes of the atonement, whatever language you prefer, it doesn't really matter. All we're trying to capture is different systems of thought that theologians have devised to try to describe the work of Jesus. Uh, and some of them you'll recognize. I suspect others of them may be less familiar to you. But I'm going to try to make the case that they all have something to offer towards a kind of a full and a comprehensive and a complete, uh, insofar as it can be complete, uh, since we are sinful and fallen human beings, but a complete understanding of the death of Jesus. The first and the earliest is a model called Christus Victor. That's a Latin word, a Latin phrase that means Christ the victor, or sometimes translated Christ victorious. And what this model says is that the most fundamental thing that happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus is that God in Christ exercises his power and dominion and his authority over sin and death, and he overcomes them. He is victorious over them. This model of thinking about the atonement was very, very common, especially in the first three or four centuries of the church's history. Many early Christians used this as their prime model of thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. His atoning work consists in his victory over sin and death. Uh, and I, I'll give you a quote here on your study guide that sums up the Christus Victor view pretty powerfully. This is from Athanasius, who I believe, although it's been a long time since we talked Christology in here, I believe we met Athanasius when we talked about Christology. He was writing in the fourth century uh, in Egypt, and he wrote a book uh, on the incarnation of the word a book you may have heard of, and he describes it like this. The, surprise, uh, the supreme object of his coming, Jesus' coming, was to bring about the resurrection of the body. This was to be the monument of his victory over death, the assurance to all that he himself had conquered corruption. There's that victory language. And that their own bodies would also be eventually incorrupt. And it was taken, uh, sorry, it was a token of that pledge of the future resurrection that he kept his body incorrupt. So by Christ, death was destroyed and the corruption that goes with it resolved and brought to an end. He called this the marvelous and mighty paradox. What he meant is that death was ultimately undone by death. That somehow, mysteriously, the death of Jesus broke the spell and the power of death. And his victory over death uh, in the resurrection is the monument to God's uh, triumph, uh, his triumphant power uh, over the powers of sin and death. And this is a model um, that is helpful for us to keep in mind uh, that when we are trying to live out a faithful Christian life in the world where we are beset by all kinds of uh, problems and persecutions and troubles and pains and sorrows, we can take solace in the fact that in the death of Jesus, death itself has been defeated and he is victorious over all the powers that would subject us, that would hold us in slavery. Sometimes the best way to capture the Christus Victor model is to look at it in Christian art. Um, this model remains very influential in the Christian churches of the East. That refers to the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. And here's a cathedral from Turkey, a Greek Orthodox cathedral uh, and this is a mural called Anastasis, the Resurrection. And this captures very well what is going on in the Christus Victor model. Here you have the resurrected Jesus. I don't know how well you can see it on your handout, but if you can make it out, I want you to notice that Jesus is standing on bones. He's standing in a graveyard and he is pulling the saints 
out of their graves. And that captures really beautifully what Christus Victor is all about. In his death and then in his resurrection, Jesus pulls the saints out of the grave, right? The clutches of death that held us uh, in fear and in uh, subjugation have been broken. And this is captured so powerfully in Revelation chapter 1, where John, the apostle, has an encounter with the resurrected and glorified Christ And Jesus says to John, he says, don't be afraid. Behold, I am the living one, he says. I was dead and now I am alive forevermore. And what he says next uh, captures Christus Victor as well as anything in scripture. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. I went through death. I came out through the other side and now I've got the keys. So death cannot lock us forever. Uh, A second model of the atonement that was fairly prevalent, although less so in the early church, is associated with another church father by the name of Irenaeus of Lyon. He was a uh, Greek-speaking theologian who was active actually in the Latin West in in what is now France in the second century. Uh, And in his book, Against the Heresies, he proposed a model of the atonement known as recapitulation. And recapitulation is a fancy word, but what it means in Latin uh, literally means to put the head back on something. Uh, It's sometimes translated, for instance, to sum up. You get the word used, the Greek equivalent of the word actually is used in Ephesians chapter 1, where uh, Paul speaks of Jesus summing all things up in himself. Uh, And we might think of it as maybe uh, rechaptering. I have found the language of rechaptering to be helpful. Uh, And let's see if we can figure out what Irenaeus means. He says this, the son of God, when he had become incarnate was, and was made man summed up in himself, the long line of human beings and furnished us in a brief comprehensive manner with salvation. So that what we had lost in Adam, namely to be according to the image and likeness of God, we might recover in Jesus Christ. What Irenaeus is saying here is that it's not just the death of Jesus that is atoning, it is his life. And this is helpful for us because in the evangelical Protestant tradition, we tend to emphasize the death of Jesus as the only moment of atonement. But here Irenaeus is saying, actually, no, the entire life of Jesus is atoning because what it is doing is it is retelling, it is rechaptering, if I could put it that way, the human story where Adam and Eve had failed and fallen and plunged the human race into despair, Jesus Christ lives a life of perfect obedience. He lives a perfect human life, a completely genuine human life. And as he goes, he is retelling the story of Adam and Eve, and he is retelling our story too. And so he is summing up in himself the human story. And you can see this in a couple of parallels in the Gospels. So for instance, Uh, Jesus Christ at the very beginning of his ministry is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, which the gospel writers intend for you to understand in parallel with the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. But whereas they fail, Jesus succeeds. And then he faced his last test, we are told, in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and then on a tree, right? The tree of Calvary. Whereas Adam and Eve had faced their test in the garden under a tree and had failed. 
And Irenaeus says that when Jesus is, rises from the dead on the first day of the week, he steps out into a garden. It's new creation. So the life of Jesus sums up the human story, retells it, where death and destruction are not the ending. And incidentally, uh, he also sums up all of our individual stories into, into himself also. And this is of great comfort to me, man. There are chapters in my life where I just wish that I could tell them over again. Don't you have chapters like that where you just wish your story had not gone that way? Well, the doctrine of recapitulation suggests that Jesus can actually retell your story. He can redeem it and give it a different ending. Another early Christian model of the atonement is uh, called the, the ransom theory. It's often called the ransom theory. And as we saw in our brief biblical survey, both the Gospels and Paul uh, and other New Testament writers use the language of ransom to, def- to, to um, describe the death of Jesus. But they're never explicit, those passages, about who the ransom is paid to. Uh, and so for a lot of early Christian writers, uh, like Gregory of Nyssa, a quotation I've given you here on your study guide, he suggested that when Adam and Eve fell, uh, they fell under the jurisdiction of Satan, who became their rightful master. So they were slaves to the devil. Not every ransom theory suggested that. Other Christian theologians have suggested that we became uh, slaves to sin and death, and the ransom needs to be paid to death. Uh, and a very few thought that the ransom needed to be paid to God, but that's a minority position. And here's how Gregory uh, captures ransom theory. It's a really sort of striking image. He says, in order to secure that the thing offered in exchange on our behalf might be more easily accepted by him who demanded it, and the one doing the demanding here for Gregory is actually the devil, the deity was hidden under the veil of our flesh, that so as is done by greedy fish, the hook of deity might be gulped down along with the bait of the flesh. This is a really provocative image, and it's sort of controversial. What Gregory is saying is that when Adam and Eve fell, they became subject to the jurisdiction of Satan. Uh, Satan owns them. They need to be redeemed, and the only way that they can be redeemed is by the payment of a ransom. In, in, In other words, they've been kidnapped by the devil, and a ransom needs to be paid. Uh, but the, the cost of the ransom uh, is exorbitant. Human beings can't afford it. So Gregory says what happened is that Jesus Christ, uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became incarnate, took on a human nature, and his human nature actually served as, uh, like, uh, as like a worm that you would put on a hook. And his divine nature is the hook, according to Gregory. And what happens is he tricks the devil into biting down on the hook and actually killing himself. In other words, the devil thinks that he has won the final victory over Jesus, uh, but it, it turns out that he got more than he bargained for. Uh, if that sounds strange and odd to you, uh, you might be more familiar with ransom theory as it is told by C.S. Lewis. Uh, and in point of fact, the ransom theory is the theory that C.S. Lewis prefers It's usually how he thinks about the atonement in his works. And you can see this in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, especially in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Edmund, the foolish boy, has betrayed his siblings, like Adam and Eve betrayed the rest of the human race. And he has fallen under the dominion of the White Witch. And uh, they're trying to get Edmund back. 
And the White Witch says, okay, I'll take him back, but in exchange for Aslan's life. And Aslan gives his life on the stone table. The White Witch believes that she has won, but like that fish that bites down on the hook, uh, she bit off more than she could chew. And it says that there's a deeper magic, Lewis says, that uh, undoes uh, death. And this is what happens in the death of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read it, disregard that last couple of minutes. You could watch the movie, right? Uh, another theory as we're kind of getting closer to the modern period that this will start to sound probably more familiar to you is a theory called the satisfaction theory. It's associated with a medieval English theologian by the name of Anselm of Canterbury. He wrote a, a very influential book called the Cur Deus Homo, the why the God man. And the question that Anselm is trying to answer in that, that book is why did God have to become incarnate as a human being to save us? Couldn't he have saved us some other way? That's the question he's trying to solve. And he concludes that Jesus did have to be a human being and had to be fully God. And the reason is because of this. Here's the argument he makes. The man who does not render to God uh, honor, which is God's due, takes away from God what is his own and dishonors him. And this we call sin. So Anselm is defining sin as failure to render unto God the honor that he is due. So essentially human beings have gotten into this dire predicament because they gave the honor that was due to God to some other thing, to an idol, to themselves, what have you. And so now they owe a, a massive debt of honor to God. That's the predicament that Anselm is uh, talking about. So he goes on, everyone who sins ought to render back to God the honor he has taken away. And this is the satisfaction which every sinner ought to make to God. Uh, and so this is uh, how he's describing the problem that human beings have. We owe this massive debt of honor to God, but we've sinned against God and we can't pay it back, although we owe it. He's talking about sin pretty much as a debt, right? We owe it to God, but we can't pay it. So he says, yet I have nothing to render to God in compensation for my sin. So for Anselm, the reason that Jesus Christ has to become, uh, the, well, the son of God, the Logos, has to become a human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth is because, number one, he has to be human in order to identify with us in our plight. He has to identify with the people who owe the debt. But he has to be God because he has to have the resources to pay the debt. So the only, the only way God could have saved us, according to Anselm, is to become a God-man. Uh, the incarnation, because only God has the resources to pay the debt and only a human being owes it. Now, this might sound kind of strange and foreign and futile to you, uh, but we understand the logic. Actually, this has deeply impacted the way that Protestants think about the atonement. For example, say that uh, at the end of this talk, I'm really frustrated with how it went, right? And I'm holding it together right now, but inside I'm seething. I'm just upset with my performance. And as soon as Chris is done recording, I step down and I get really mad and I lose control for a minute and I take a chair and I smash a window back here in this corner. Okay. Well, the window's broken, right? There's a problem. Something has happened. There's been a breach. Now I could say to Chris, oh man, I'm really sorry about your window. I don't have the money to pay for it. Chris can say, okay. I forgive you, but someone still has to pay to repair the window, right? There's an actual breach that has to be repaired. And just saying, don't worry about it, doesn't actually fix the problem. This is what Anselm is getting at. There has to be a satisfaction made for the breach. 
and uh, for Anselm, and I think he's picking up on some, some thoroughly biblical themes, Jesus Christ, by his death, makes satisfaction for a debt that we owe but cannot pay. I hope that makes sense. But since you're watching at home and you're not in the room, I have no idea if that's connecting. But if you have questions, send them in. Almost there. Going to give you just two more models. This one comes from another medieval theologian by the name of Peter Abelard. Uh, this is from his commentary on the book of Romans. Now, Abelard's view of the atonement is very, very different from Anselm's. Abelard doesn't want to talk about a debt owed by sin uh, or satisfaction. In fact, for Abelard, what the cross does is it shows us how much God loves us. Right? Uh, the purpose of the cross for Abelard is like this. He says this, I think, therefore, that the purpose and cause of the incarnation was that he might illuminate the world by his wisdom and excite it to the love of himself. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it is, right? Uh, this kind of thinking has become common in evangelical circles that the purpose, perfect, uh, the purpose of Jesus's death is to show us his love. It's found its way primarily actually into our worship music. That's where you're most likely to see this. That, uh, that what, what the cross is all about is God showing you just how much he loves you. And that's true. It's absolutely true. And it's a theme, uh, particularly in John's gospel, where Jesus says to his disciples, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Uh, so for Abelard, what the cross does is it shows you that God loves you enough to die for you. And the idea here is that that will sort of melt your heart and turn you back to God and you will return God's love to him uh, that he showed to you. And that sounds fine, but one of the problems with this model, if you take it by yourself, is it suggests that um, the only purpose of Jesus was to sort of set an example for us. Uh, and that's true that he did. But what the other models capture, and which I think is much closer to how the biblical text presents it, is that we've got a serious problem that needs to be remedied by the work of God. We don't just need to be shown how much God loves us, although we do need that. All right, let's end our doctrinal tour, our little historical whirlwind tour with Martin Luther. Uh, I'm going to present to you an image from Martin Luther where he's describing the work of Jesus, and it's going to sound very familiar to you because it is Luther and the other Protestant reformers have, that have really framed the way that we think about the doctrine of the atonement in our context here, uh, where I wager that most of us are coming from. What I want you to notice is that Luther is starting to use legal language to talk about the death of Jesus. And he's perfectly justified in doing this biblically, uh, particularly in the book of Romans, Paul uses lots of legal language like guilt and exoneration. We're going to talk more about that when we talk about the doctrine of justification, which is a legal term. But I want you, as I read this description and as you review it on your study sheet, I want you to notice all the legal language being used to describe the death of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Because of an eternal unchangeable sentence of condemnation, which has been passed for God cannot and will not regard sin with favor, but his wrath abides upon it eternally and irrevocably. Redemption was not possible without a ransom. There's that language again, without a payment of such precarious worth as to atone for sin. So here he's drawing together a few of the different themes we've talked about. There's that ransom language, and he's also talking about the precarious worth that the ransom must have. 
the idea that it must be so valuable that it can make satisfaction for our sin. And I want you to notice also that he used the language of sentence of condemnation. For Luther, when we sin, we bring down a guilty sentence and we need somehow to be exonerated, but we can't exonerate ourselves. So we needed a ransom of such precarious worth as to atone for sin, to assume its guilt and to pay the price of the wrath and thus abolish sin. This no creature was able to do. We can't save ourselves, in other words. There was no remedy except for God's only son to step into our distress. I love that language. And himself become man to take upon himself the load of awful and eternal wrath and make his own body and blood a sacrifice for sin. And he did so out of the immeasurably great mercy and love towards us, giving himself up and bearing the sentence of unending wrath and death. What Luther is describing here is what has classically been called the penal substitution model. In other words, Jesus substitutes himself on our behalf and takes the penalty for sin, which he talks about uh, as the sentence of wrath and death. So uh, Luther is giving us a very sort of classical Protestant interpretation of this doctrine that likely sounds familiar to you. But what I want you to understand is that his model, this penal substitution, which we are probably most familiar with, uh, the majority of us, I'd say, is only one of several models that Christians have historically used to talk about the death uh, and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So by way of summary, let me say this. If there's one thing you remember from our talk this evening, I'd like you to take away this. The models are not mutually exclusive. In fact, uh, there is no good reason to choose between them. And it is fairly common in some theological circles. I won't name them out of charity, but there are certain theological circles in which you will hear things like X, Y, or Z model is the only way to talk about atonement, right? Or this is the biblical model of the atonement. But as I hope that I've shown, uh, both by looking at the biblical text and at the history of doctrine, uh, there are several biblical models of the atonement and several ways that Christian theologians have framed those doctrines uh, to make sense of the cross. And in fact, not only do we not need to choose between them, we actually need all of them to make sense of the magnificent work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So do not listen to people who tell you that there is only one biblical way to understand the atonement. Rather, there are several, and we need them all together to give a coherent and comprehensive account of the death of Jesus. One question we need to consider as we close is, is the atonement constitutive or is it illustrative? All I mean by this is, does the atonement actually change our situation before God? Or does it reveal that we were actually fine with God all along and, and the atonement just reveals how much God loves us and reveals that we're actually okay. It may sound like a silly question, but it's very common actually, even in our churches to talk about the atonement as only uh, illustrative, as only illustrating that God loves us and always loved us. But I think that the balance of the weight of the biblical evidence suggests that something a new situation is constituted by the death of Jesus Christ. We were actually alienated from God. As Paul says, we were enemies of God. We were actually separated from him. And the death of Jesus actually brings us to God. I'll just close very briefly by saying this. 
whatever model you prefer, and everyone uh, is more attracted to some models than others. You might find some more useful than others. You might find that some of them resonate more fully with you than others. But whatever model you choose is your dominant understanding. The Bible is absolutely clear. The New Testament is absolutely crystal clear that uh, however we are saved, we are saved only by the work of Jesus. Right? There's a, a, a sermon in Acts 4 where Peter says, uh, there is salvation in no one else and there is no other name under heaven by which people may be saved. Right? So what, however it is that we end up in right relationship to God, it is by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and we do not bring anything to the equation, right? So one of the things the work of the atonement should do is it ought to humble us and it ought to elicit just a, a response of just startled gratitude and adoration that God would give his life so that we might be reconciled to him. And that's what the atonement is all about most fundamentally. So uh, we're going to continue our explorations in soteriology next week by looking at the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. Evangelicals sometimes tend to tell the story uh, as if it ends with the crucifixion of Jesus. But in fact, the work of Jesus is ongoing. And we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to look at his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And we're going to talk about the work that Jesus does in his exalted state. Uh, which is very, very important for us to understand the ongoing and complete work of Jesus. So tune in next week where we'll tackle those themes and I'll look forward to seeing you then.